Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angelus Pizzito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. From chefs to owners, mixologists to bar managers, you name it, we want to provide you guys with a ton of value, anything hospitality Today we're here with Kevin Demers from Montreal, owner of The Cold Room, El Pequeño Bar, and Parliament. Kevin, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. So as, as a quick background, I mean, you know, you and I, both from Montreal, we, we often run into each other at, you know, events, whether it's, uh, you know, tales in, in New Orleans or, you know, conferences in Toronto. So I think... Um, I think that's kind of the premise of the show, right? The same way we run into each other and we kind of have these one-on-one talks and sometimes, you know, group talks with other hospitality professionals. And the idea behind Whisking It All was how can we do that, but maybe at scale, right? How can we kind of share some of those little nuggets of information that you sometimes have at these events, but with, with the world. So that's kind of the, the idea. And I appreciate you um, being here. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. No, of course. Uh, what, one of the first things I'd love to start off with at the podcast is kind of the how, right? So like, unlike other professions, most hospitality professionals get into it really for the passion, right? Whether it's a restaurant, a bar, any type of venue, it's really a lot of passion. And typically it comes from working in the industry. So I'd love to learn the how, like, how did you get started? How long ago, you know, before you were an owner, like, what were you doing in hospitality? And maybe, yeah, walk me, walk me through that. <laughs> That's a story. Um, <laughs> I got into hospitality when I was about just turning 18. I knew zero of alcohol. I don't come from a a family that drinks. My father doesn't drink a lick. He's never drank anything in his life. And my mom, uh, a glass of wine here and there. So me getting into that just didn't make any sense to anybody. And then I made a decision when I was about that age because I was a really shy kid. And I was basically like, I want to make some money. I know that there's a lot of money to be made in, in this industry, but I can't approach people. So I just, it's like, I can't be a waiter. Like, I can't just go up this, to a table. I, I'm really uncomfortable with it. So I ended up applying for a bartender position at uh, Thursdays when oh, it was nice. around and when it was still a thing. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I got the job, but uh, through like a favor from a friend of mine, uh, starting as a busboy and then a bar back here and there, I got teased with having the opportunity to be a bartender. But it was legit old school OG bartenders. Half the guys (laughs) were over 50 years old teaching me how to bartend. So I really got to learn like what it was like to be a bartender back in like the 80s. Just right. like this, like psychopath, just a complete animal atmosphere. But it showed me, it showed me a lot that a lot of people, like in this generation, don't really have. Which is, it's not about the actual cocktails and/or the food itself. It's really about the service and the the interaction between client and whether it's a bartender or a waiter. Right, right. Uh, and it's 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 really a dying art. This is just my opinion. That connection in between client and bartender and/or client and and waiter, whatever it is, like service professional, if you want. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so I ended up starting there in my, my career. But at the same time, that was just as sort of my side job while I was in school. And while I ended up playing professional hockey for a little bit in my early 20s. And I, all, <laughs> I, like, I love how that's just a side note. How are you playing professional hockey and working as a bartender super it late sucked. at night? It sucked. <laughs> it, it was the worst thing ever. 
Well, I, I quit when I was about 15, 16 and got back into it when I was like 18, 19. I just wanted to prove to myself that I still, uh, I could have made it professionally. Right. Because at that time, it's like my, my road was kind of paved to go pretty high up there in the, in the professional world. And uh, I just sort of like gave it all up kind of thing. Decided to start replaying, not really thinking that I was going to play professionally. And I ended up playing like minor pro for almost two years. And just proved to myself that I still could play. And uh, I just said, you know what? I'm content with proving that to myself. I don't need to prove anything else and I can move on with my life. But it really transitioned into something else, which was uh, I went to UCLA for uh, writing for film and television. Okay. And that's, that a, was, that's a left turn. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't know, I, I didn't know that about you. Um, that is actually just because of hockey. Like when I would have my days off, I didn't. I hated reading, so I ended up just starting to write randomly, and it just built into writing for film and TV. And uh, yeah, and the whole time I was always bartending. So bartending was always there for me. Uh, lo and behold, in when was this? What is it? Nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. I uh, started a company which was called Humphreys. It was a bow tie company. Well, it was bow tie men's accessories, if you want. Okay. Uh, again, like the entrepreneur in me slowly was coming out. And uh, the storytelling definitely helped. And that's why I like the, the idea of storytelling mixed in with uh, entrepreneurship. Like I'm, I'm huge on that and how important it right. is. Big time. And uh, yeah, it was an e-commerce store. E-commerce store didn't do extremely well, which is fine. But the story was really strong. But that led me into this path of um, a friend of mine asked me to start working at a place called Santos in the old port or no Montreal, excuse me, to work under him. And he got invited for a competition, which was the Bombay Most Imaginative Bartender. And okay. he didn't want to do it. At that time, it was a, what's it called? a private invitation. So there's only 12 bartenders in Montreal. I wasn't really considered oh, wow. a, a well-known mixologist, but I was considered a, a, a very strong bartender. You know, they used that vernacular back then. And he came to see me and he goes, listen, if I can, uh, uh, this is Justin Sabini. It's a good buddy of mine. At, uh, shout out to Justin. He basically uh, just calls us and I'm not really down to do it. But if you're interested, I'll see if you can do it. Because I know you're going to do really well. Uh, it's it's kind of your style to do things like that to like build a story and stuff. And it was my first competition. I knew nothing of anything. So I was like, you know what, I'll give it a go. We'll see what happens. Lo and behold, I ended up winning regionally that year, which pissed off a lot of people. Because <laughs> they're like, who is this guy? Hey, yeah, well, and it. now he's like, winning. Well, like they all, like all these bartenders heard of me, but they never thought I would get into it. So it was kind of one of those things like stay in your lane. Like it's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. at that point, it was more or less like a club bartender. If you want to, if you want to label it. Right, right. So yeah, I ended up going to Vegas and seeing what uh, basically a $15 cocktail can get me. And I was like, this is fucking insane. Like I get to, like all expenses paid Vegas, staying at the whim stay like it doesn't make any sense like bartending for Victoria's secret models and things like that and i'm just like this makes zero sense to me. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and yeah i ended up i was like okay i gotta get into this i ended up doing that competition again for another year and it was only that competition i wanted to do just to prove to uh like the city that i can win it again and lo and behold i ended up winning a second time but this time i won all of canada i almost ended up winning globally and the thing is with that competition is that in that time, if you won, you got the cover of GQ magazine. No way. So, yeah, I sort of got, I have the magazines. No I'm, I'm in two of the, uh, two of the spreads in like two years back to back. That's, pr- that's a pretty big feed. Wow. 
yeah it's it's pretty like honestly it's it's really fucking cool and what's even cooler is that the people that i connected with uh internationally uh, these are still people that are friends of mine today and people that i'm trying to work with now in the future the connections that i got to make over just those two competitions were humongous worldwide i can only imagine because even when you know we go to these sometimes these conferences or you know i'll take new orleans and tails as an example it's like I was blown away with, I don't think people realize how small, I mean, how big, but yet how small the hospitality world can be, right? Like yeah. you see bartenders and owners and whatever from Miami chatting with people from Montreal and Toronto and, you know, Vegas crew. And like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, like it's, it's, you know, it's all in North America, but yet like everyone kind of knows each other to a certain extent. And oh um, man, you know, I've been fortunate enough to go to some really cool places because of bartending uh, around the world. And then some of my own like personal travels around the world, I've gotten to stay in unbelievable places. I've gotten to meet unbelievable people. I've gotten to have amazing tours of different cities or cultures or whatever it is because of, because of bartending. And I always, I always revert it back to because of a $15 cocktail, <laughs> uh, meaning just like the, 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 how much it would actually genuinely cost for a, like a cocktail to be made that we're making for competitions, like the average price is about 15 bucks that we're selling it at. So I always base it off of that. It's like a $15 cocktail has gotten me free trips open and all these hotels doors. and this and that. And exactly, and open an insane amount of doors. Love it. I love it. And so one, one of the, I want to take it back just for a second, because I, I mean, I love, I love where, where this is heading. And I think one thing you touched upon is, you know, in the early days, learning from other bartenders and kind of getting that experience. What are, how'd you go from, you know, being a bartender, you know, working your way up. And I think definitely this is a, a key part of the story, right? Like the, getting these competitions, getting some recognition. How'd you go from that to then saying, you know what, I want to own my own place. I want to start my own place. You know, like how did that transition happen? That came up when I was in all honesty, I was looking for a location for about six years. Oh, wow. Rough, okay. rough estimate. Uh, again, I didn't have money at the time. I didn't understand business as a whole. You know, I didn't go to business school or anything like that. So everything that I've gotten up to this point has all been learning, you know, on the fly, basically. But it's something that I've always wanted to do because I would see these places that I would work at or places that I went to. And I just told myself, I was like, I know I can do better than this space or this boss or whatever it is. And wherever I was working, a lot of the times I can I can put up with a lot of shit and a lot of whatever kind of abuse it is, like verbal or anything like that uh, from a from a superior. But at one point I was just like, yeah, I can do this better than these idiots. Like, and not, not hating on anyone, but it's just, it's come to that point where it's like in the hospitality industry, one thing that's kind of lacking, especially is like clientele. It's like people always ask you something, oh, what's your other job? And it'd be nice that the hospitality industry would turn around and make it feel like it's a, a big corporation where it's like, you can start as a bus boy or like dish pit and work your way up to being an owner or a business owner of some, you know, some shape or form. And a lot of times what ends up happening is these owners basically, it's not everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone as a whole, but a lot of them end up seeing a, a key person and using and abusing them to the point where they're just burnt out. And this has happened to me often where it's like, well, I'd love a piece of the pie because I'm here literally every day and I work extra for nothing. Like I don't ask for extra. I don't ask for a raise. It's, I come from a, a, a hockey background, a sports background where it's, you know, your work will be acknowledged. If you're working hard enough, you'll move up from the third line to the second line. 
So I use that mentality in, in the corporate mentality or the corporate world where it's, you know, if you're that strong, you'll be acknowledged and you'll get a little something in return. And that's the one thing that I find is very difficult in the, the industry, at least in Montreal, from what I've seen. I just, you know, wanted to make my own path. I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this and I'm going to work my ass off to have my own. Finally, by complete randomness, well, the, the story of Cold Room is a whole other conversation, but uh, mm-hmm. like just to get that space was uh, serendipitous, if you want. Like everything kind of, the stars aligned magically. It was unbelievable. That's awesome. For people listening, like you said, they, they come from the, the passion, right? And I think that's a super important base, whether it's from bartending or, you know, being on the, on the food side of things and then working their way up. And some of them want to open their own spot. But I think one of the things that, as you kind of alluded to, is they don't maybe fully understand what's ahead of them on the business side. So obviously, it's, it's, it's going to be impossible to give a full crash course right now. But I'd love to maybe chat about what are some things you didn't expect, you know, on the business <laughs> side? You know what I mean? Like, Construction, everything. hiring, yeah, everything, right? Like, look, I'll, I'll put it to you this way, okay? I was completely by myself. I didn't necessarily have mentors around me. I had people that wanted shares to the business that obviously didn't exist, but they saw opportunity and tried to jump on it without putting any effort into it. And I got extremely lucky with my landlord, Rick Kahana, who uh, was uh, the owner of, uh, my goodness, uh, Luzinda Spaghetti, which is uh, might sound like nothing to anyone, but it's an establishment that's been open over 35 years and well-recognized in the area in old Montreal. And uh, this guy grilled me just to get the lease and like made me feel about like that big, but really put me in my place. And I, I really understood and you know, I went to him for advice a few times, which I don't think is heard of. I don't, I don't hear anyone talk positively about landlords. It's rare. And I went to him for so much business advice at the time uh, where he could have really screwed me over because I didn't understand certain business terminologies and little things like that. And especially with leases, he really didn't. He guided me and put me in a really interesting path. And then uh, I met another friend of mine who's also a, a partner of mine, Benny Bello, who owns Bello Deli in, uh, in old Montreal as well, that also guided me into business. And, and it was all little things, like the rest I figured out myself, but there's just so many details that you just don't think about on the backside of things that people forget. And that's the funny part is the transition between a bartender or a manager even to a bar owner is it's night and day you know you have to understand costing you have to understand inventory you have to understand administration you have to understand permitting you have to understand down to like the smallest thing like hiring is a whole other thing you know you have to understand if you have to have a pest control coming in to make sure that you don't have any kind of infestation and it could be anything you have to hire uh, somebody for your beer lines to make sure they're clean you have to hire like the list goes on uh, something is always breaking every week. So there's there's a lot of small details that a lot of people forget about or don't even realize that it's there. And, you know, as a sole business owner, it's very, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot, but it's something that I, I pride myself in because a lot of people, and it's, I'm the kind of guy that I don't have the money to hire a million and one people. I don't, come from a financially sound family and it's it's no offense to, to my family at all it's i can't turn around and ask for you know a hundred thousand dollars to start up a business from anyone in my family 
as hard as it is, it's also extremely rewarding because I came from next to zero dollars to my to my name personally. And you know, here we are about five years later. Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I personally like really love about hospitality. And it's kind of, you know, one of the reasons we got into this, uh, the business of whisk, uh, as a whole, but even just this podcast, it's kind of like you mentioned, it's, there's so many little things that have to add up, uh, and you essentially have to put everything on the line. And even at that, you're not guaranteed anything because then it's the customer experience is the music, right? Is the food, right? Is the lighting, right? You know, you got to touch all the senses, right? And that's not even talking about the million things you spoke about before, which might be location and staff and list goes on. And so I think that's what's so magical. At the end of the day, you're trying to create this unique experience for a guest, but they don't, you know, they just see the last mile. They don't see the 99 miles before. And in a way, I think that's what's so special. There's so many things that need to go right for that customer to be like, wow, this place is super cool or you know yeah. i had a great experience or you know you have to check this place out right that falls into like a, a funny convo of just um i call it like the a to z basically the moment they leave if they drove the moment they leave their car to the moment they enter their car when they leave to the moment basically they walk into when they leave every little thing has to be just completely on point and including like, and it sounds silly, but uh, an old mentor of mine mentioned that to me one time. They go, your client could have one of the best nights of their life, get to their car and have a parking ticket. And that parking ticket will ruin everything and they'll never come back to your business. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's wild to think that it's true. The smallest thing can affect the experience completely for any client. And it could be right outside of your business. Yeah, it's funny. I remember reading about this concept years ago, but I mean, it's essentially what we're talking about. And the, the terminology they used was moments of truth. And it was like, how many moments of truth to get this total experience? So like you said, it could be from parking to how you get greeted by the host or hostess to the cleanliness of the place to the music playing in the background, right? Like, And every little single point is a moment of truth. And what makes the ultimate experience at the end is the series of moments of truth. It's not just one, but it's a series. And that's what I find, you know, it's, is super important because one of the things you, you mentioned earlier on, which I couldn't agree more, is some of the best nights I had personally, I remember were a big part, you know, there were many moments of truth, but a big moment of truth was the staff. And to your point, some of the best nights I had was when the staff was like super friendly, you know, maybe you have a, you buy, you end up buying them a shot or something. You end up kind of building this rapport and like just having such a good time. And yes, the food was good and drinks were good and all those other things, but that experience and that human interaction just kind of makes all the difference, right? Yeah. It's funny because that cold room, that's kind of one of our major things because a lot of bartenders or waiters, they got that. They got kind of stigmatized with that whole, there's no personality in these quote unquote mixologists. So with the whole doorbell idea, so you have to ring the doorbell to get in because the bartender or waiter answering the door, they have about 30 seconds once they answer the door to once they actually bring you to your table, maybe a bit more than that, about 45 seconds to just talk to you. And that small connection has made the difference between our location versus anyone else's location and how how well connected it is and how you're more personable it is to the client because they're like oh my god like the guy that's serving me is answering the door right now so it's like we're welcoming you into our home it's almost like a lost art now it's a little different but when i grew up it's you know somebody answering the door it's you know we'd answer the door and hey guys how are you now it's a little different if somebody rings the bell you're just like paranoid but it's bringing that sort of nostalgic concept back of your you know, ringing someone's doorbell to get into their home. 
Yeah, it's it's funny because like on, on a, in a more general sense, like the doorbell is a great example, right? You used to hear the doorbell and it was like, great, we got visitors, everyone's excited. And now you hear the doorbell and you're like, did anyone, you know, is anyone expecting someone? <laughs> no, no one texted me. What's going on here? Yeah. And it's, it's funny because it's almost kind of gone as far as like the actual cell phone, right? Before it was like, just pick up the phone and call me. Now it's kind of like, why is this person calling me? Just text me. And it's kind of this extra wall almost in between, you know, that human interaction. Part of the idea with this podcast is really to share some of, you know, not only your experiences, but really share your creations. So I'd love to briefly just talk about like the passion, inspiration just behind Cold Room, chat a little bit. And you'll also mention a bit behind El Pequeño, which I think is pretty unique and you'll mention why. And then maybe just a bit about Parliament to kind of give uh, our listeners a sense of what inspired you and what it's all about. Well, Cold Room was uh, the first and Cold Room was really, again, like I said, a, a six, almost like a six year search. And then I finally found a location that I liked and I legitimately called the landlord, my, my now landlord, about argument's sake, about eight months. Every, if it wasn't every week, it was every second day just to tell him, like, I want the space, I want the space, I want the space. And then eight months later, he finally agreed to it. And then it took me 12 months to build the space because the agreement between him and I was... I'm going to give you a ridiculously insane rent that you're never going to find, but you're going to have to build out the space. It was, it was kind of a, a win for me if I could get the space built. But the problem is, is I didn't have the financing behind it. So to actually get it built, I had to do most of it myself. So that space was a labor of love completely. Oh, wow. So you, you literally were, were in there kind of... Name, name something in the space. I most probably, if I didn't build it, I helped building it. Just an example, I'm not a colder man now, I'm actually in parliament, but if you notice on the back right, right here, that's like all stone. That's basically what you find in all over Montreal. I had to clean those out. It was about a 22 foot wall, nine feet. I had to clean it out with a small pick and a hammer. It took me about four weeks. And at that time to save budget, I had a small heater that was just keeping me warm. But we're talking like a small heater that you can get at Canadian Tire for like 90 bucks. Yeah, because I didn't have the baseboard heaters weren't even installed. Like I had to wait and it was minus 40 weather inside of a basement bar that used to be an old cold room back in the day. So the idea of the bar itself originally was a, uh, a cold room that was supplying ice and, uh, and fresh vegetables for uh, the uh, Square Jacques Cartier. Uh, which is right next door. Um, and I just went, you know what, let's stick with that theme. Uh, let's go with cold room. And originally, we were going to go like all out and do like everything pickled and, you know, fermented different items and this and that. And it just we got hit with a bomb as soon as we opened, like the space did well, basically the first day that I opened, I, we just almost couldn't even get we almost couldn't even catch up just to like the popularity of the space. And I'm, I'm not saying that to brag at all. It's just, I don't know what, how, where, how it worked out. But again, like the stars aligned and just everything worked out in our favor. Speaking of stars, I mean, that, that one thing that I, I love about Cold Room is just it's super low key. It's, you know, old Montreal. You see this kind of like back alley door, walk, you know, walk inside. You get, like you said, you get greeted, you got to ring the doorbell. But I think it's pretty cool that even certain celebrities found it, you know, cool enough and certain stars. I think it's, it's amazing all the work you've put in. So why not share just some celebrities that have, uh, have had the pleasure of having some cocktails at Cold Room? Well, funniest story for me is I was a big Sons of Anarchy fan. And uh, 
White Buffalo. It's a band. If you know White Buffalo, they're uh, the guys who sing the main uh, the main song, the theme song. They were in town, and I at the time my cell phone was the cold room line. So anytime somebody would call, it would always be me answering the phone. And so most of the time, people would, oh, is Kevin there? No, he's not there. It was my phone. They ended up calling, and they go, yeah, is there any space? I'm, like usual, I give the the typical line. Unfortunately, we uh, we don't take reservations. They go, well, you know, we're only in town for one night. We're a band. And at the time, I was with uh, I was at Joe Beef with Pietro Kalina, which is uh, the beverage director of uh, the Nomad Hotel and Eleven Madison Park, who's an unreal guy. We were at Joe Beef, and we were both sitting there. I invited him up for a a conference that we had we were holding, <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, we uh, we ended up getting free tickets to the show, which was basically an hour later. And then right after that, we went to the back with the band and then we went to go uh, to the bar after that with the band. Like it was just weird. Yeah, that's a pretty cool experience. Really a cool night because I was like, man, I love these guys. So it was fun. Christina Aguilera came a few times. She's just amazing, amazing human being. Can you share her go-to drink? What was the cocktail you guys? Oh, she was just, no, she didn't even have one. She goes, just make me anything fun. Like that was it. Oh, but nice. what That's was cool. cool and I really appreciated it is that we saved like a sort of a corner booth for her and she got up and she went to the bar and sat at the bar and just started talking to, I believe the couple that was next to her was from, they were from Alberta. And she was just like, Hey guys, how are you? And just talking like you're just a regular Joe, like just a, Hey buddy, how are you? And it's like something to me that definitely is going to mark somebody and be like, wow, that was such a, a, a cool night. And she's not the only one. Kenny G came in and started buying like uh, beers for everybody, like just one person at a time, just buying beers. Um, ben Stiller, really cool guy, just drinking tequila straight. Owen and Luke Wilson, Will Ferrell, like the list really goes on. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's been really, really cool. Like the people that actually have come to the bar. Right. The people that we've gotten to receive and gotten to cater to has been something in itself and something that I definitely would have never believed would have happened if you would have rewound and told me that during construction. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's the magic of it, right? Like starting from nothing, putting your sweat and tears into it, and then getting to a point where, you know, it's busy, it's popular. And now you got, you know, like you said, Christina Aguilera sitting there or Ben Stiller. And I think in many respects, like, you know, just big kudos to you because hospitality is a really tough industry and yeah. a lot of passion goes into it. So I love hearing about these uh, success stories. You know, at the end of the day, cold room was really simple. It's, we didn't have any speakeasies per se. It was just like starting. It came to be. It was like, how am I going to promote this bar? It's a bar in a basement with like no real entrance. So uh, we came up with just leave the door as is, have a doorbell and promote it that way. And the idea was just to have a really strong brand, which is the rubber duck that uh, with the X in the eye that basically if I walk around with that jacket, everyone knows the duck just like that as its own brand itself. And that logo actually comes from the Montreal police, which was the nightlife police uh, back in the 60s. Okay, I didn't even know that. That's pretty cool. Well, it was the gang squad that developed into nightlife police. And we just modernized the logo. And the theme behind it was we were going to take the nightlife by storm because that was their motto at the time. So ours was that, but in a hospitality approach. And the idea itself was just changing the way hospitality is treated, not just with clients, but with your staff, with your employees, with how you can get them to go from a busboy to a bar owner, if that's really their goal or 
I, I think now I see I see where your storytelling background came in. That's a, that's a pretty cool. Uh, no, that's awesome. Like how that logo came about. I didn't even know that. Um, I'd love to just maybe touch on two quick things, and then I know you also have El Pequeño in Parliament. So El Pequeño, I'd love to just share your quick story on that because uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the smallest cocktail bar in Canada. From what I know, it's the smallest in Canada. I don't know if it's the smallest in uh, in North America, but uh, that's what we've been told. How small are we talking? I mean, I've been there, but for our yeah, listeners... 100, 147 square feet. So it's basically the size of like a standard bathroom. <laughs> one one bartender working. The concept itself, El Pequeño means the small in uh, the Spanish translation. So El Pequeño Bar means the small bar in Spanish. And the idea was introduce rum to the Montreal community. But also the other angle was because we're in a very touristy area, more specifically for Americans. And Americans love Cuban rum. They can't get Cuban rum in the States, obviously because of the conflict with Cuba. So we said, let's just push that idea and go from there and see where it takes us. And That's awesome. So how many people fit in at the same time? Uh, same time, legally, it's nine. That's including the uh, the bartender, so technically eight. And uh, yeah, it's actually funny. The first week that we opened, the cops came by and they were, you have 10 people in here. And I was inside and they started laughing. They're like, you have 10 people in here. So I stepped outside and they're like, okay, you're good now. And I was like, I was like okay. But yeah, the idea itself was really, uh, uh, we make it look like an old Havana hotel bar. And we just push that Havana theme. So the only thing that's kind of not Havana is the Cubano sandwich, which is Miami. But it was something to me that was important to have because it's good to always have an item of food just to like munch on. And I actually went to uh, to Miami with a, a very good friend of mine, Nick Villalon, who used to be the brand ambassador for McAllen. Now he's a lot higher up. So we ended up going like two weeks and uh, eating basically uh, Cubanos in, in Miami. <laughs> and uh, drinking McAllen for like two weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds like a pretty good trip. Hard life, hard life. Yeah, and then your latest project was Parliament, but now you're working on something new. So maybe just real quick, tell us a bit about Parliament, inspiration behind that, and then love to hear about your newest top secret project. What I like about Old Montreal is that each, each building has a story or each street has a story. And I'm trying to just tell those like Montreal stories and themes or bring some kind of story to, to a space, I think it's important to make people feel like they're getting transported somewhere. Like to me, a, a, a space feels like a never-ending movie scene. And that movie scene should always be on loop every day. What's fun about Parliament is that it's actually in front of the original Canadian Parliament. That actually got burned down in 1849 by the English loyalists. Well, English loyalist, big thing. I went to the museum and had a long conversation with like the the head of the museum and stuff like that, and a few of the uh, archaeologists, just to really be on point with the whole story. And I don't make any big mistakes because of the French <laughs> French English conflict in Quebec, which still exists today. So we went uh, we went the direction of just telling the story of Parliament and how celebrating Canada, not necessarily Quebec or Montreal, but celebrating being Canadian and what is being Canadian. It's multiculturalism. It's not just one culture. It's a mix of everything. So we push, you know, the English theme, yes, but we also push the French theme. Right now we're pushing uh, Cambodian because our chef is Cambodian. Oh, very cool. But we have all elements of all over the world that, that touch on what is Canadian at this point, you know, and and it's supposed to be a celebration of multiculturalism. 
that's the idea in itself. And then, and then you, you told me, so, you know, we got cold room, we got El Pequeño, we got parliament. And recently you, you mentioned that you're working on a new project. So I'd love to maybe just share your new project. It's kind of, uh, you know, different than your other projects. So maybe the inspiration behind that. Inspiration is pretty simple. It's COVID. Fair enough. Fair enough. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, can can relate, sympathize <laughs> with that, right? So basically, one of the big, big things for me was I wanted to treat the people that I work with, you know, a touch more respect than what I've been treated with in my past with people that I've worked under, and that means building them up to ownership position. And there was one specific person that it was his time to grow. His name's Sam Kirk. And COVID hit and put a break on everything. And we both knew we wanted to work together. And uh, an opportunity kind of arose where we saw, basically, we just saw all our eggs in one basket and went, well, you know, we're really in trouble right now because we have nothing that's allowed to be open except for takeout in one of our restaurants, which is Parliament. The problem is, though, is that no one's really going to a pub for takeout. Like it's not what you order usually, it's an experience. So you're going there to have an experience. And we've based all of our businesses around experience. Now the experience is gone, so it almost doesn't make sense. Using COVID to our advantage, we went, you know what, let's diversify businesses and let's start focusing on something else that'll generate money during another COVID if it ever exists again. So we ended up coming up with a retail store, but more specifically a beer store. Been working on it for about six months, argument's sake. And we're more or less a month away from uh, being able to get it going and operating. And it's very, uh, it's very simple. That, you know, we looked at the market and we just saw that, you know, obviously we can't sell alcohol because it's SAQ's uh, turf, which is the alcohol stores. And then we looked into, okay, what can we do that's different that we can stay open? In Montreal and or in Quebec, you're allowed to have a grocery permit and stay open because it's considered an essential service. So a grocery permit is a very loose term because if you go to most cafes, they have grocery permits. So that's why most cafes are still open right now because you have to kind of make that decision between a grocery permit or a restaurant permit. The problem with the restaurant permit is you're not allowed to sell alcohol to go. You're allowed to do that with a grocery permit, but you're not allowed to sell import. So you're only allowed to do microbreweries uh, micro in Quebec or anything that's bottled in Quebec, wines and ciders that are in Quebec, and that's it, that's all. So we decided to go that direction. There's, you know, we're really well known for micro uh, breweries in Quebec. There's, my God, there's like 500 SKUs available. Again, we have plenty of knowledge in beer. We have plenty of knowledge with all the micro breweries in Quebec already. So it just makes sense for us to sort of make that transition into retail at this point. So we're trying to bring that hospitality approach to the retail side of things now and and push that side. I love it. I love it. I think I think in times of adversity, like that's what you have to do. Like even us on the on the tech side, you know, just how we adapt and how we sell and, you know, going more online or trying to sell to, you know, different states or different countries, totally relatable. And it's at times like this, you gotta try different things. And like you said, for a lot of people, takeout doesn't work. It seems like, oh, it's okay, just do takeout. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. It's not just like, no, you know, okay, I'm, no. I'm going to go on takeout and everything's going to be okay, right? It, it doesn't work that way. Two things. One is I'd love to, you know, kind of final note, if you'd love to maybe share one piece of advice, you've started from the bottom all the, all the way to an owner and now multiple venues. And 
I think you've shared a lot of cool lessons, but any kind of takeaways for people listening, maybe hospitality professionals listening, any final words of wisdom? With everything that happened with COVID, I'd tell you, you know, I'm not the you only live once kind of person, but, you know, definitely with COVID and all that stuff, it's kind of woken up a lot of people, a lot of people in my circle as well, and think really look deep and dig deep. If you realize it's not something you want to do, well, build for something that you want, invest in yourself, I think is the number one thing that's most important instead of investing into either others and or into silly things. You know, that's what I did in all my 20s is just invested in myself as opposed to investing it into trips and this and that. And then, you know, my 30s, which I'm in my right now, able to enjoy my my trips a lot more than at the beginning. And I think that's the most important thing is that if you can invest in your future early on and really stay focused, you can definitely do something interesting. But I'd also relate that to get a mentor, get someone that's a shitload older than you are that's went through it. Ask as many questions as you can. If not, yeah, if not, go to the bank, sit in the bank. That's what I did for, my God, almost two years. And if a question pops up, just ask a banker, ask the, the manager, ask whatever it is. Like, uh, just figure it out. If you really want it that bad, you'll, you'll find a way to figure it out. And that's, I think, the most important thing. Agreed. And so to end off this segment, uh, we end off every episode with a segment called Last Day on Earth. So being from the hospitality world, last day on earth, not to get dark here, but what would be your last meal and your last go-to drink? Last go-to drink, last meal. Oof. Uh, last meal, probably end up going with a really, really good steak. Uh, mashed potatoes, like just the classic. Mashed potatoes, steak, small little thing of fries. I'm a happy man. Honestly, to drink with that, it's a good beer, <laughs> straight up. Nothing more complicated than that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I love. I'm it. not. I'm. I'm a. Ha I'm a ham and eggs kind of guy. Just a worker. <laughs> Just give me the. Give me the easy stuff. I love it. I love it, Kevin. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today on Whisking It All. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. I think you really shed some light. So thanks again for being here and uh, taking the time to connect. Thanks so much, buddy. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch. All right. Definitely.